Okay, turn with me to Matthew 5, and we're going to begin a new passage today, verses 21 to 26. And let's read this passage first. It says, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, You good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever says, You fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. One of the uh, many things that I did while I was a law enforcement officer was to work in various capacities in numerous murder investigations. Uh, the first time I ever did that, uh, I was just a young patrol officer who was assigned along with others to search a large area uh, on foot to see if we could locate any evidence that the murder suspects may have disposed of in a large field next to where the bodies were located. Uh, the case involved a young couple who were out on a date on Dunedin Beach one night after dark when two men, Daryl Hoy and Jesse Lamar Hall, crossed paths with them. And Jesse Hall was evil incarnate, and Daryl Hoy was a young man who was easily led into participating in various crimes. And they had a gun, and so they raped the girl at gunpoint while her boyfriend watched, and then they shot and killed both of them. And because Daryl couldn't keep his mouth shut, he told someone who told the police, and in the end, both of them were convicted of the murders and sent to prison for life. Later in my career, when I was the patrol division commander, we were involved in an elderly, uh, when an elderly woman's body was found lying on the side of a dirt road in the north edge of Dunedin. And while we were still at the scene with the detectives, we received a phone call from Tampa PD. Uh, it seems that the woman's adult daughter was at the West Shore Mall, and her car there had mysteriously caught on fire. Uh, Tampa Fire Department arrived to put out the fire and found that it was caused by dousing lighter fluid in the car. And her mistake was that she left the windows up on the vehicle after she set it on fire and walked away. And once the fire used up the oxygen inside the car, it went out. So the fire department saw the lighter fluid can and blood inside the car, called Tampa PD, who in turn called us. Uh, she went to prison for 25 years for murdering her mother, and it was all because she was heavily in debt from spending on credit cards, and she kept begging her mother for, uh, for more money, and her mom finally said no more, and the daughter, in a fit of anger, uh, killed her with a kitchen knife. And the ironic thing was that when they did the post-mortem autopsy on mom, she had severe case of cancer and would have been dead within six months, and her daughter was the only child who would have inherited all of mom's money. Uh, at another point in my career, we investigated the murder of a man in an apartment complex. Uh, he'd picked up another man at a local restaurant, got him drunk, 
uh, and he took him back to his apartment where he made sexual advances towards him. And when the drunk man realized what was happening, he beat and choked the man to death. And uh, it wasn't hard to find the murderer because when he fled the scene, he accidentally left behind his ID card from the Georgia prison system from which he'd just been released a few weeks earlier. Uh, so he was sentenced to 25 years in prison. In another murder investigation, while I was the criminal investigation unit commander, uh, we investigated the murder of a woman in a very nice residential neighborhood. In the end, we figured out that the woman was killed by her son and his drug dealer because the woman wouldn't let her son bring his homosexual lover in to live together in her house. And he figured that if mom was dead, he would inherit the house and then he could have his lover live there with him. And he and his drug dealer both went to prison for life. And there were other murder investigations I was involved in, not the least of which was a man who brutally uh, and viciously murdered his two-week-old newborn son because the child wouldn't stop crying. Uh, I spent almost an hour on the stand in court testifying about that man's bizarre behavior at the crime scene where I was posted to secure the scene while the detectives investigated the crime. Uh, I won't go into the details here. That would be far too distracting from what we need to talk about in this passage, but he went to prison for life. You see, murders come in all kinds of ways. They come through domestic squabbles. Uh, they come through love triangles, both heterosexual and homosexual. They come through gang warfare. Uh, they come as a result of arguments and fights and conflicts and misunderstandings. They come by drunk drivers killing others with their cars. Uh, murders occur all the time. In fact, there are about 45 murders every day in our nation. Uh, murder is a very serious problem in our world, and it's getting worse all the time. And that doesn't say anything about another form of murder, which is suicide. Uh, that's a form of murder by taking a life. There are about 132 suicides in our nation every day. Uh, that doesn't count for abortion either, which is the murder of unborn babies. There are over 600,000 abortions every year in our nation, almost 1,700 a day. Uh, and since abortion was legalized in 1973, there have been at least 60 million babies murdered. So the numbers of murders in our nation is absolutely staggering. And in certain other countries, the murder rates far exceed uh, those here in the United States. It's far more common than many people think it is. And in the first of the six illustrations of heart righteousness that Jesus gives in Matthew 5, he deals with the sin of murder. In fact, murder is the very first crime recorded in the Bible. Uh, Genesis 4.8 tells us that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Now, sin had already been in the world for at least a couple of decades at that point in time. Uh, but scripture doesn't record any other specific crime before that. And it's clear from Cain's response to God uh, when he was confronted about his crime that he understood it was wrong. At first, he tried to pretend he didn't know where his brother was. And after God told him he knew that Cain had killed Abel and pronounced judgment on him, Cain begged for mercy and said, my punishment is too great to bear. So he recognized that it was a violation of God's law to kill one of God's image bearers. 
And later on in Genesis, after the flood, when God was sending out Noah and his family to repopulate the earth, God specifically told them, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. Uh, so from the very beginning, murder is seen by God as an assault on his image. Murder isn't simply the killing of a human being. It is an assault on the very image of God himself. And so God authorized capital punishment for those who murder because man is made in the image of God. Now let's look at our text in Matthew 5 and notice how verse 21 begins. It says, You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. Now where did that statement come from? Well, it came directly from Exodus 20:13, where God said those exact same words in the Ten Commandments. Uh, but Scripture has a lot more to say about murder than just that. And when God said you shall not murder, he did not prohibit every form of killing a human being. Uh, the term which was used refers to the criminal killing of a person, a, that is, a murder. It does not, it obviously does not refer to capital punishment because God specifically authorized that for murderers. It does not refer to a just war. A just war uh, is a war such as those which God authorized in the Old Testament in which he commanded Israel to wipe out the Canaanites when they conquered the land. Or in our era, it's a war which is intended to destroy those who are committing crimes against humanity such as World War II and others. Uh, there are both just wars and unjust wars. Uh, this is not a time to debate the justness or unjustness of specific wars. Just note that there are wars which fulfill God's plan for justice against those who commit crimes against humanity. Uh, I do not believe that the text of Exodus 20 has anything to do with self-defense. Uh, I think that we have the right to protect the image of God in our lives uh, and the lives of our families and those about us when they are assaulted and attacked by those who would kill us or them. Uh, that was the role I fulfilled in my job as a law enforcement officer. I, was, I had to be willing to kill someone who was killing, trying to kill me or someone else. Uh, and so it is clear from Scripture that God is not talking about an accidental murder, that is, the accidental killing of another person. In fact, in Numbers 35, God had the Israelites set up six cities of refuge uh, where someone who accidentally killed someone could flee from those who were out to avenge the blood of the one who was killed. Uh, if they could satisfactorily prove that the murder was accidental, they were allowed to live in those cities. But if it could be uh, proven that the death was not an accident, but was in fact a deliberate event, they were to be executed. So God does not require the death penalty or any kind of penalty for that matter uh, in the case of accidental murder. Uh, but what the Bible is talking about is planned murder or murder of passions. In Exodus 21:14, we read, If, however, a man acts presumptuously towards his neighbor so as to kill him craftily, you are to take him even from my altar that he may die. 
So God reiterates capital punishment for premeditated murder. And it doesn't matter if he ran to the tabernacle or the temple to try to seek forgiveness from God. He was to be taken away and executed. In Numbers 35, uh, where Moses goes into all the detail about the cities of refuge, we have some further words from God about this. In fact, let's look at this for a moment. Numbers 35. I'd like you to look. I'd like to have you look at these obscure Old Testament passages once in a while because you simply shouldn't take my word for that that's what it says. You need to see it for yourself. Numbers 35, beginning in verse 16. It says, But if he struck him down with an iron object so that he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. In other words, if a man takes an instrument of iron and crushes the skull of another, he's a murderer. He's to die. Verse 17. If he struck him down with a stone in the hand by which he will die, and as a result he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. Or if he struck him with a wooden object in the hand by which he might die, and as a result he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. The blood avenger himself shall put the murderer to death. He shall put him to death when he meets him. If he pushed him in of hatred or threw something at him lying in wait, uh, and as a result he died, or if he struck him down with his hand in enmity, and as a result he died, the one who struck him shall surely be put to death. He is a murderer. The blood avenger shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. So in other words, the person who recklessly or with premeditated malice killed another person was to be killed. He could not take advantage of the protection of the cities of refuge. But look what it says next, verse 22. But if he pushed him suddenly without enmity, or threw something at him without lying in wait, or with any deadly object of stone and without seeing it, dropped it on him so that he died, while he was not his enemy nor seeking his injury, then the congregation shall judge between the slayer and the blood avenger according to these ordinances. The congregation shall deliver the manslayer from the hand of the blood avenger, and the congregation shall restore him to his city of refuge to which he fled, and he shall live in it until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. But if the manslayer at any time goes beyond the border of his city of refuge to which he may flee, and the blood avenger finds him outside the border of his city of refuge, and the blood avenger kills the manslayer, he will not be guilty of blood because he should have remained in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer shall return to the land of his possession. So depending upon the age and health of the high priest, the person who accidentally kills someone might have to live in a city of refuge for a long time. Uh, but he was not to be killed if he accidentally caused the death of another person. And so we see from the very beginning of the book of Genesis with the first recorded human crime and on into God's law as established in the Pentateuch, murder is a biblical issue. And we know how God feels about it. It's forbidden and it's punishable by death. As we come to the New Testament, we read that murder is a crime authored by Satan himself. Uh, John 8:44 says that the devil was a murderer from the beginning. So murder is basically authored by Satan. 
We also see that murder is a manifestation of an evil human heart. Uh, Matthew 15, 19 says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. Folks, murders, adulteries, thefts, and all those other things do not happen because someone was socially deprived when they were growing up. Uh, they don't come from the bad environment they grew up in or the bad influences in an abusive father. Uh, they happen because of a degenerate human heart. Uh, murder does not happen because of stressful situations. It happens because it's authored by Satan himself. Uh, in Romans 1, 28 and 29, it says that because mankind did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. Man is a murderer because he has a depraved mind that has been given over to evil because he rejects God. So murder is a crime authored by the devil, and it is a crime that comes out of the evil, depraved human heart. In Galatians 5, verses 20 and 21, Paul describes the deeds of the flesh, and he includes such things as enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions. Those kinds of things are almost always involved in murders. So murder is an act of man's fallen, unregenerate flesh. We learn also in the Bible that murder is an abomination to God. In Proverbs 6, 16 and 17, the Bible says there are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. And in one of those things that are listed is hands that shed innocent blood. Murder is an abomination to God. And to show you how seriously God views murder, in Revelation 22, as God closes out the final chapter of his word, he describes who will be in heaven and who won't. And it says in verses 14 and 15, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. The kingdom of God and the eternal state is not a place for murderers. Now the list of biblical murderers is long, and we could spend all day talking about them. Uh, the Old Testament lists a lot of murderers, and those who were listening to Jesus that day would have thought about men such as Cain, Lamech and Pharaoh and Abimelech and Joab and the Amalekites and David and Absalom and Zimri and Jezebel and Jehu and Athaliah and Joash and Manasseh, many more. The New Testament lists some more, Herod and Judas and the high priest and Barabbas and Herodias and her daughter Salome. And that's a partial list. So biblical history and modern history are literally filled with murderers. From Cain to today, right now, we've had murderers in human society. Uh, when you think about a person who is a murderer, there are certain crimes that are so horrific that they seem to be beyond comparison. They seem to be so inhumane. 
and we find it hard to relate to those. We might relate a little easier to someone who is in a heated argument and they take a gun and shoot someone. Uh, we may relate a little more to a fight in which a man chokes and beats and kills his wife's boyfriend after he catches them in bed together. But it's all the same to God. It's murder, and God prescribes death to those who do it. Now, in verse 21, Jesus says, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. And at that point, the scribes and the Pharisees would have said, Amen. We're against murder. Uh, we know that's what the law says that was given to our forefathers, and they taught us the same thing. Murder is an evil thing. In fact, they thought that they did not murder because they did, and, and because they did not murder, they, they convinced themselves that they were righteous. They thought we wouldn't murder. We would never murder anyone. Therefore, we must be righteous. We've kept the law of God. But this is precisely the point at which Jesus wants to attack them. Back up in verse 20. What did he say there? He said, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. They said, If we don't murder, we're righteous. Jesus says, Your righteousness has to exceed that. Not murdering is not enough. And he begins to attack such self-confidence by charging that no one is truly innocent of murder because the first step in murder is anger. <coughs> the anger that lies behind the murder. The anger that many people think is not really a sin is one of the worst of sins. To one degree or another, it makes all men would-be murderers. And so Jesus says, that regardless of whether or not murder is committed outwardly or not, it affects us in three ways. First, it affects our view of ourselves. Secondly, it affects our worship of God. And third, it affects our relationships with others. What Jesus is going to say is so dramatic, it will shatter the Pharisees' comfortable categories that they had built for themselves. They had convinced themselves that because they didn't kill anyone, they were holy and righteous. And the Pharisees are no different than any unbeliever you meet today. They all think that if they don't actually kill anyone, they're righteous enough for God. Jesus blows that concept to bits. So let's get started with the effect on our view of ourselves. The effect on our view of ourselves. Look again at verses 21 and 22. You've heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. The first effect of Jesus' words is to shatter the illusion of these folks' own self-righteousness. They thought they were righteous because they didn't commit murder. And Jesus reiterates the truth that their religious system of Judaism had passed down the tradition 
that so long as you, you fulfilled the law's requirement of not actually killing someone, you're okay. Now, what the ancients were told was biblical. The first phrase, you shall not commit murder, as I said before, is directly out of Exodus 20.13. So there's no question that is biblical. They were right on that point. Further, you'll notice the end of verse 21 says, whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. That's true also. Numbers 35, 30 and 31 says, if anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses. But no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Moreover, you shall not take ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death. He shall surely be put to death. So right there it says that someone who commits murder and there is sufficient witness testimony, they are to die. So once again, this rabbinic tradition was true. They were, to, they were again right on this point. But the point that Jesus is making here is that that doesn't go far enough. That much is true, but there's so much more. He says, you have taken only a part of God's law and you have only partially interpreted it and then satisfied yourself with keeping your partial interpretation and therefore justifying yourself. You see, their interpretation of the Sixth Commandment of the Ten Commandments was simply this. Don't murder because if you do, you'll get in trouble with the law. But what about God's holy character? That didn't even enter into the discussion. Uh, they had made God's commandment into nothing more than a legal matter. It was simply a codified law that murder was wrong. It was so mundane, mundane and routine that they didn't even mention God or divine judgment or inner attitudes. They said nothing about the heart. All they said was, don't murder or you'll get in a lot of trouble. If you think about it, that's very superficial. And because they didn't physically murder anyone, and thus they didn't get into trouble with the court, they decided that they were righteous, that they were justified, they were in good standing before God. It's the same idea as the people you meet today who have heard that one of the Ten Commandments is, you shall not murder, and they immediately justify by themselves by saying, I haven't done that, so I'm good. But these guys forgot to apply the rest of the Old Testament to that because the rest of the Old Testament says that God desires truth in the innermost being and in Deuteronomy 6 5 it says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul with all your might and Leviticus 19 18 says you shall love your neighbor as yourself and in Proverbs 24 12 it says if you say behold we did not know this does not he who weighs the heart perceive it does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it and will he not repay man according to his work? And you all know God's words to Samuel when he was going to go look for the next king to appoint after Saul's disobedience to God's clear commands. He told him, God does not see, God sees not as man sees, for God, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at what? The heart. The heart. With God, it's always a matter of of the heart. 
So the part of God's law that they left out was the internal part. It wasn't enough for you not to murder someone physically. God was concerned about what was going on on the inside. They had restricted the scope of God's commandments to a physical act of murder and an earthly court. They had confined murder to being merely a civil issue and had confined its prosecution to a human court. And that's why Jesus goes on in verse 22 to say, but I say to you. In other words, let me tell you what God really meant by what he said back in Exodus. Let me give you the right interpretation. He says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, is guilty before the Supreme Court. Whoever says you fool's guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. <coughs> Jesus simply says, it isn't a issue of murder alone. It's the issue of anger and hatred in your heart. You cannot justify yourself because you haven't committed the physical act of murder. Murder goes much deeper than that. It originates in the heart, not in the hands. It starts with evil thoughts, regardless of whether or not those thoughts are ever brought to fruition. And so the first point is that Jesus' words affected their own self-righteousness. It affected how they viewed themselves, how we view ourselves. You know, we do this all the time. We say, oh, I'm no murderer. I'm not one of those kind of people. I would never do that. And yet, sometimes we get so angry on the inside with someone. We mock and deride others. We may wish someone was dead and went to hell. We may feel bitterness towards people. We may nurse grudges. We may have unresolved, unreconciled feelings towards someone. And Jesus is saying, that's the same as murder, because God looks at the heart. And when he says, I say to you, he's just sweeping aside all of the rabbinical rubbish, all of their traditions, and he put the emphasis where the emphasis belonged. He stripped them of their self-righteousness. He said, in effect, who is a murderer? I'll tell you who a murderer is. Anyone who is angry with his brother. You're a murderer. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? It's devastating. It stripped the Pharisees bare and it doesn't do a bad job on us either, frankly. Anger is the root of murder. And our Lord says anger and murder merit equal punishment. He says you're in danger of judgment. You're in danger of the council. You're in danger of hellfire. What's Jesus saying? This is so important. He's saying that what's going on on the inside of you is what God judges. You may hate you may hate more than a murderer hates, but you simply don't have the opportunity to kill. And even hatred that is less violent than that, anger towards another person to any degree, is the same in God's eyes as murder. And so the question is, who is a murderer? And what's the answer? All of us. All of us. And the word brother here in Matthew 5.22 is used in a broad and generic sense in terms of social relationships, the other people in your life. It's not your spiritual brother because 
no one listening to Jesus at that point would have understood the brotherhood of believers. Uh, you have a, a hatred, you're a murderer. You have, you have anger, you're a murderer. And in God's eyes, it's no different than a man who goes out and does the crime. You know, it's amazing to me how we justify ourselves. Everyone does that. Even the worst of men justify themselves. Way back before, there's only one person I know in this room who was born then, the spring of 1931. Uh, my dad was born in November of 30, so he was he was a, a, an infant. Uh, there were 15,000 New Yorkers who watched as Francis Tugun Crowley, who was a vicious 18-year-old bank robber and murderer, had a two-hour shootout with the police. And over the previous three months, Crowley had killed at least two people, including one NYPD officer, and he shot and wounded at least four more. And during the gun battle, he was wounded several times, so he surrendered. But what kind of a person did Crowley think he was? Well, we know the answer as to what he thought about himself, because in his pocket was a blood-stained note which read, quote, Under my coat is a weary heart, but a kind one, one that would do nobody any harm, end quote. You say, that's absurd. Yeah, but... The point is, that's the depth to which a human heart will go to justify itself. I mean, who did he think he was kidding? Uh, while awaiting execution, he was a notoriously uncooperative prisoner, doing all kinds of things to create problems, including setting fire to his bed and frequently crafting homemade weapons. Uh, but he claimed to be a gentle soul who wouldn't harm anyone, and he was executed in the electric chair at the age of 19 years old. See, even the worst of men exonerate themselves to some, in some way, to say nothing of the best of men who would think, oh, I would never put myself into that category. But Jesus strips us stark naked of all of our self-righteousness. And he says, if you're angry with someone, if you hate somebody, you're a murderer. He's saying, even if you don't do the killing, if your heart is full of anger and hate, you're a murderer. And so Jesus strikes hard to show us that even the best of men, if the truth were known, are actually the worst of men. You and I sit so smugly and we think that because we don't commit those kinds of crimes that we're righteous before God. And Jesus says, if you've ever been angry or hated somebody, you are a murderer. And he uses three illustrations to reveal the sin in verse 22. So let's look at each one. The first one is the evil and danger of anger. He says, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Now, just a side note as we start this, if you happen to be using a King James Version or a New King James Version, you will notice the words without a cause are there. That phrase does not appear in the older, better manuscripts. And apparently some scribe many hundreds of years ago was obviously trying to soften Jesus' words because they seemed too hard to him. Uh, but Jesus was making a very hard point. Uh, now, I will say that there is a righteous anger, but that's not what Jesus meant here. Uh, I know you recall that on two occasions, Jesus took a cord, made a whip, and started cleansing the temple of all the guys selling sacrificial animals and exchanging money for pilgrims. There, 
There are times when God's indignation reaches its absolute limit and explodes. There are times when the vengeance of God bursts loose and people lose their lives. Uh, and there are times when a believer has the right to be angry. In fact, I believe that the holier we get, the angrier we get about certain things. Uh, and we need, and I think we need a little more of that at certain times. Uh, in a day and age when everybody wants to talk about tolerance for one another and acceptance of everyone's ideas, no matter how deluded and degraded they may be, we need to stop being so mealy-mouthed and start displaying some righteous anger about them. Uh, there are a lot of things going on in our country that we ought to be angry about with a righteous indignation. Uh, there are things going on in our schools and our nation's children are exposed to that we ought to be angry about. And I'm not talking about face mask mandates. I'm talking about the godless indoctrination of various moral issues uh, that violate God's standards. Uh, and there are some things going on in our churches of our nation that we ought to get righteously angry about, such as the endorsement and promotion of homosexual pastors, women pastors, and critical race theory, a philosophy which is destructive to the true gospel. So we ought to get angry about certain things. We ought to have righteous indignation. We ought to be angry about those things that attack the glory of God and the person and work of Jesus Christ. We ought to be angry with the kind of anger that is not sinful. Says Ephesians 4.26 says, Be angry and yet do not sin. There's a right kind of anger. But Jesus is not talking about anger over God being dishonored. He's talking about selfish anger. You're angry with someone else. Something has happened and you're really mad. You're angry. It can be a slow burn or it can be a flaring thing. Uh, the noun form of this verb used here refers to a sort of brooding anger that's not allowed to die. Uh, it just smolders for a long time and it becomes bitterness, which can just burst forth in rage and fury. And Jesus says that when you hold a grudge and bitterness against someone, when you hold anything, no matter how small, against someone, you are as guilty as the person who takes a life and you deserve the same judgment. If you're angry with your brother, you're guilty before the court. It's just as serious. By the way, when in verse 21 he says a murderer shall be liable to the court, and in verse 22 he says the angry person will be guilty before the court, in both cases he's referring to the standard punishment for murder, which was death. If you're angry, you're in danger of execution. Capital punishment should belong to you for anger as much as for murder. Now that's a devastating statement because it forces us to look inside ourselves. It isn't, so, it isn't what we do so much as what we are and what we feel. I don't know of a civil court in the world that would give the death penalty to someone for getting angry. They may give it throughout history for murder, but not for anger. But if God is the judge passing out the verdicts, he is saying, in effect, that the one who is angry is as guilty as the one who kills. <clears throat> anger merits execution because the fruit of anger is murder. The second illustration Jesus uses is in the next phrase. It says, 
it talks about the evil and danger of slander. It says, whoever shall say to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. Now, what does this mean? Well, this person is also condemned as a murderer. This is another person who ought to go before the council and, and get the same death penalty. He's saying to the Jews, you're afraid of the death penalty for murder? On God's terms, it ought to be the same penalty for anger. And there ought to be the same penalty for calling someone an empty head or good for nothing. Now, some Bible versions have the Greek word racha here. Right here. Has that word here. It's an interesting term, and those translations that include it do so because it's very difficult to translate. Uh, it's an untranslated epitaph. Uh, in other words, it doesn't mean anything specifically. Uh, it, it was a, sort of a term of derision that doesn't really translate. Uh, it meant something in that time, and they all knew what it meant. Uh, it's a malicious term. Uh, some have said that it means brainless idiot. Uh, some have said it means worthless fellow, silly fool, empty head, blockhead, good for nothing. Uh, so it was a verbal expression of slander against another person. Uh, perhaps it was more directed towards his personality or his character or something about his looks, something like that. It was a word of arrogant contempt. It's a word, a word of despising. There are several terms and gestures in our language and culture that would fit this kind of term. It may be a racial slur directed at someone with an intent to demean and degrade that individual. Uh, it may be a gesture of some kind with a hand or a certain specific finger of the hand to express your displeasure and what you think of that person uh, based upon their presumed lack of intelligence. Uh, it's all the same thing. I've certainly heard it a few times in my life, particularly in my former career. Uh, it didn't come out raka, but it meant the same thing. Uh, it's the poison under the tongue, like the viper's poison of Psalm 140, verse 3. Uh, it's that malicious, slanderous verbiage cast in someone's face as they did to Jesus. It says in Matthew 27, 29, that they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Uh, the words were not raka, but they meant the same. They were saying, you're a worthless, stupid idiot who thinks he's a king. So this refers to insulting words used by someone who despises another. There's a tale told about a young rabbi whose name was Simon ben Eleazar, who had just come from a session with his teacher, who was a famous rabbi. And he was feeling particularly proud of how he handled himself before his teacher, how wonderful was his own scholarship. And he was thrilled with his own righteousness, goodness, and holiness. And as he was walking along, he passed by a rather uh, ugly, lowly, common man uh, who greeted him. And rather than return the greeting, Simon ben Eleazar said, You raka, how ugly you are. Are all the men of your town as ugly as you? To which the man replied, That I do not know. 
but go and tell the maker who created me how ugly is the creature he has made. You see, to slander a creature made in God's image is to slander God himself and is equivalent to murdering that person. Jesus said contempt is murder in the heart and the contemptuous person shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. That was the Sanhedrin, the council of the 70 who tried the most serious offenses and pronounced the serious, the severest penalties, uh, including death by stoning. Folks, what Jesus is saying is that what you feel inside is enough to damn you to eternal hell as much as what you do on the outside. That's what he means. There's a third illustration in verse 22, and it's the evil and danger of condemning character. It says, and whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Now, apparently this was an even worse thing to say to someone. It seems like there's a rising level of offense here. The word translated fool is this word, moras. Moras. What English word would you imagine we get from that? Moron. Moron, is right. It was used in secular Greek literature of someone who was stupid, dull, and obstinate. It, it may be related to the Hebrew word mera, uh, which means to rebel against, and it was often used to refer to someone who rebelled against God. So to call someone a fool was to accuse them of being obstinate and godless. Now, once again, it's possible to use this term without incurring any guilt. But if you're doing it as an epitaph of hatred, then it's a sin. Let me show you the difference. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you fools, you moras. Only it wasn't wrong for him to say it because it was true. Uh, he knew their hearts and motives. They were fools. They had rebelled against God. Psalm 14.1 says, The fool has said in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt. They've committed abominable deeds. There's no one who does good. The fool lives a life set against God. He lives a life of self-will and self-design. And you do a man a favor when you go to him and say, You're a fool to live that like that. There's a time when we do people a favor to say, You're foolish. In fact, it's our obligation to warn those who are clearly in opposition to God's will that they're living foolishly. In, in a sense, that's what happens when we excommunicate someone who refuses to listen to the counsel of church discipline and repent of their sin. We're telling them you're behaving foolishly and God will not be mocked. We're turning you over to Satan's domain in hope that you will suffer the due penalty of your sin and that you will repent and return to the Lord for his forgiveness. And in terms of unbelievers, we're certainly not wrong to show them what scripture says about those who reject God. Jesus' prohibition here is against slanderously calling a person a fool out of anger and hatred, not about warning those who reject God and refuse to repent of their sin that they're behaving like a fool. But when someone lashes out at another person and calls them a fool as an expression of malicious animosity, it is tantamount to murder and makes that person guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. And I'm going to have to stop right there. Um, because uh, to finish this point and to continue, I don't have time. Let me... Uh, let me explain quickly, if I can get this done. 
Okay. Next week, I will be preaching in the morning service, so Frank will be teaching the class. Uh, so if for those who are online with me, um, you'll have to wait two weeks for me to finish this, and there will not be a Zoom lesson next week. There will be no Zoom lesson next week. There will be one starting the following week when I will finish this this passage. Uh, but so that's what's happening is next week Frank will be teaching and you'll get a break from me and the gloom and doom of murder. <laughs> so uh, unless Frank decides to teach on murder. <laughs> so anyway, um, any other thoughts or questions? Terry, would you close us with prayer, sir? Our Holy Father and God, we praise and thank you for your wonderful mercy and your amazing grace and your unlimited generosity to us, all made possible by the sacrifice of your Son on our behalf. We thank you, Father, that the Holy Spirit lives within us. We thank you that you enable us to understand your word. We thank you for the lesson of today. Help us, Father, to um, understand the seriousness of um, of our thoughts uh, as well as our actions, Father, to um, daily remind ourselves to um, think and act and speak in accordance with your will. And thank you, Father, for the good teaching for today. And we pray now, Lord, that you will <clears throat> be with Jack as he preaches the morning service, that Father, our hearts will be ripe and ready for um, further instruction. Amen. Thank you.